All right, so my name is William Buckner. And uh, hey, good morning, whoever that was. Uh, I have the privilege and honor uh, to, to speak to you guys this morning. Uh, Peter asked me uh, about two weeks ago if I would be interested in uh, preaching today in Paul's absence. So I said, sure. Um, normally, uh, when I'm up here, obviously, there I... Uh, oh, kindergarten, okay, fine. All right. Um, kindergarten through third grade are dismissed. Apparently, this message is not for you. <laughs> I think everybody does that when they're up here. I don't know why. But anyway, back to what I was saying. Normally, you see me up here with a uh, guitar in front, and I'm able to kind of dole out little morsels of truth as we uh, intro one song to the next. Today, thankfully, I have the opportunity to dive a little bit deeper uh, with you guys this morning. The, the text for this message is actually something that I used two weeks ago to intro a song uh, called Living Hope. And it's from 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. And uh, I want to dive a little bit deeper into that this morning because I am a firm believer that deep biblical doctrine is what grounds us through the most difficult times in life. And I think the more that we are able to dig deeply and understand the truths and realities of God, of ourselves, of these deep foundational doctrinal truths, that is what's going to sustain us when times get tough, and they will certainly be getting tough. One pastor uh, kind of explained the, the need for this deep dive into Scripture uh, by likening it to when you scrape across the surface uh, of the ground, you might get some grass, you might get some leaves, they might be, you know, helpful here and there, but if you want to get gold, you got to dig down deep inside of Scripture. So I hope this morning it kind of whets the appetite for your own and my own personal study and diving deeper into to God's truth. We're going to talk, like I said, from 1 Peter uh, chapter 1, just a little bit of background of 1 Peter. Uh, it was written, obviously, by the Apostle Peter. The time of writing was somewhere in the early to mid-60s A.D., and for any history buffs, I think it was around 64 A.D. when Nero started his tremendous onslaught and crackdown and persecution of Christianity. The recipients of this letter were believers. The NIV calls them strangers. Uh, ESV calls them exiles who have been scattered in Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. The reason for the writing of this book, there's a couple of different themes that, that go through it, but one of the main themes is found in chapter 5, verse 12, where he says, By Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. And you see the, the idea of standing firm in trials as they come. And how do we do that? How do we hold up under immense persecution? It's by standing firm on the truth of God. So to get some context, we're going to read uh, the first nine verses of 1 Peter chapter 1, if you're there. But before we do, uh, let's just go to the Lord one more time in prayer. Lord, thank you so much, again, for the opportunity that we have to be here um, to worship together as a body of believers. Thank you for your word. Thank you for communicating who you are through your word to us. Lord, we are readily 
going to acknowledge that we cannot understand this on our own. We need you. We need your Holy Spirit to enlighten our eyes, to enlighten our minds, um, to understand what you want to communicate to us. So please come now, be here, be present, and be moving, and be working. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. So if everyone is in 1 Peter chapter 1, we're going to start uh, in verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Though you do not now see Him, you believe in Him and rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible, filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls." As I mentioned before, the time we're going to spend is mostly going to be in chapters 3 and 4. We're going to jump off to some other scriptures for uh, support. If you don't have time to turn there, you can always write those down and look those up later. But first, after the customary greeting, you find in a lot of epistles, they give a couple of verse uh, excerpt of a, a greeting, and then they kind of dive into, uh, dive into the body of the letter. So after the introduction in verse 1 and 2, Peter starts this out by saying, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's interesting how he starts it out. He starts out his message to these exiles, to these strangers, with worship. Blessed or blessedness or praiseworthiness is a way of worshiping by expressing praise and adoration to God. I think of Psalm 103 where it says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless His holy name. And I think... It's important that we start our message here, start preaching with worship and end with worship. And I say that because we should start and end our church service with worship. Worship is not something that we just simply come and do like when we sing. It's a very tangible and real way to understand worship. But in reality, worship should be the entire service here. Whether it's greeting fellow believers in fellowship, whether it's giving and offering, whether it's singing, or whether it's preaching, worship should be the ultimate goal of this. Worship should be the ultimate goal of our day. And worship should be, should be the ultimate goal of our life. All of our life is to be worship. And if you've been here at Garden Chapel, I think you have a, a grasp of understanding what this is and what worship is. So back to preaching, like I said, it should start and end with worship. And that's my goal this morning, to magnify and exalt the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now Peter here goes on to give a rational substantiation for praise and a reason for praise. And we're going to go into that. I'm a big fan 
of cause and effect. I'm a big fan of linear thinking where you can track here is the cause, here is the effect. This is what came first, and as a natural result, this is going to happen. And I think this is borne out through these couple of verses. So um, moving forward, he's already opened up this section with praise, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now moving forward in verse 3, it says, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And I think it's easy for us to gloss over words like mercy or grace. I mean, we just sang about it here, and hopefully our minds were in tune to some of the things that mercy was being described as. Um, But I think it's easy for us as we read through Scripture or passively, you know, sing through songs or hear songs for us not to get an appropriate understanding and depth of what the word mercy means. Webster's defines mercy as a compassion or forbearance shown especially to an offender or to one subject to one's power, a blessing that is an act of divine favor or compassion. A basic way to understand mercy uh, from what I've been taught and what I've learned is, is basically not getting what you deserve. If you are worthy of punishment and you don't get that punishment, that is mercy. And it's a little bit different from grace. They are the two, two sides, as some people say, of the same coin. Grace is God's unmerited favor, as we're all familiar with, God showering his goodness and blessing in our direction, not because of anything that we've deserved. Mercy, on the other hand, is, not, is God not giving us what we deserve. And I think to understand mercy... You have to understand wrath, because someone might come and say, well, why do I even need mercy? All right, doesn't, isn't God all loving, and doesn't he want me to have salvation and have this jubilant euphoria for all eternity? Why in the world would I not be given what I deserve? Don't I deserve salvation? Of course not. All right, and to understand mercy and understanding wrath, you need to understand who God is. And who we are in relation to that God. God is infinitely holy. He is unmatched with infinite glory, infinite power, infinite might, infinite justice, infinite love, infinite perfection. All right, we can't even kind of comprehend some of those realities. But God is infinitely perfect. All of the attributes of God kind of get summed up into the glory of God. The totality of the attributes of God can be described as the glory of God. He is ultimate and infinite. We obviously are not. All right? We do not measure up to that standard. And what does the Bible say um, is not measuring up to that standard? It's sin. Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Hence, sin is falling short of the glory of God, or not measuring up to God's perfection. Then in Romans 6.23, we find, obviously, the penalty of sin is death, separation, physical and eternal. In Ephesians chapter 2, I'm going to read a couple verses from there. You can turn if you want, or just jot it down if you want as well. The Apostle Paul, talking to the believers and the church at Ephesus, said, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in once in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, 
carrying out the desires of the body and the mind and were, take a look at this or listen to this more intently, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So you have God that is infinitely perfect and infinitely glorious in all things. And then you have man who is the diametric opposite to that. You cannot get more extreme from where God is to where we are in our sin-fallen state. Because of that discrepancy, because of that diametric opposition, we have the wrath of God focused on us. And think, think about that. Have you ever thought about the wrath of God? Have you ever thought about the power that God has to speak galaxies into existence by keeping all of the universe working moment by moment? That is an awesome power. And to think about that power being directed at you in wrath, that's pretty terrifying if you are honest with yourself. An omnipotent, holy God, all-powerful, looking at you with wrath. That's scary stuff. And do you know what is holding back the wrath of God that we rightly deserve for our sin? What is holding back God's wrath from annihilating us off the face of the earth? For our sin, it's the mercy of God. Reading on in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, it says here, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And let that sink in for a minute that the infinite power and wrath of God is being held back by the very mercy of God. That, in and of itself, could be fine for a message here today. I mean, we could leave and praise God for eternity just based on that truth and on that reality. But what's amazing and what's even beyond our comprehension is that not only is God's wrath being stayed by his mercy and, and we're currently not annihilated off the face of the earth, God has given us something above and beyond this reality of just not dying. And we'll see what has happened because of or according to his great mercy. Moving on in verse 3. So we start with worship. And then according to God's great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And let's take a look first at that phrase, born again. All right, you see, hear that term all the time, born-again believer, born-again Christian. Uh, we get a lot of this from uh, Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus in John chapter 3. All right, Nicodemus comes to Jesus. Live up to the standard. How can anyone enter the kingdom of God? And this is what Jesus has to say in John 3, 3. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. John chapter 3, verse 6, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, that which is born of the spirit is spirit. So in order to enter the kingdom of God, we must be born again. If we are not born again, we are left under the wrath of God, white hot against us, with our destination being eternal separation from God in hell. Now take a look back. Who is, who is responsible for this Reality of us being born again. Who does it say is responsible? It says God. He has caused us to be born again. So who has caused us to be born again? God has caused us 
to be born again? Who has done the entire work of salvation? It is God who has done the entire work of salvation. The beginning and the end of our salvation, or another way to put it is, who's responsible for the totality of our salvation? It is God, if you interpret this text clearly. It is God and it's God alone. There's no good work or anything that we can add to our salvation. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, carrying on in Ephesians 2. By grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one can boast. Salvation is caused by God. Being born again, as it says here, is caused by God. And that, again, can spend a lot more time kind of developing that, but we're not going to do that this morning. So therefore, because of the great mercy of God, God himself has caused us to be born again to what? To a living hope. And no, we're not going to sing that this morning. I don't think. Maybe, maybe not. Um, it would be great, it would be appropriate, but we're not going to sing that. But we are going to look at living hope. Hope, when the Bible uses the word hope, it doesn't use it the way that we use the word hope. All right. When we use the word hope, usually in our everyday vernacular, it's like, I hope it's not going to rain today because I want to go golfing, or I hope my boyfriend of three years proposes to me today. Not that that ever happened. It was about three years, I think, maybe. I don't know. I did it, and it worked. Um, but with those types of hoping, we're not exactly sure of the outcome. When the Bible uses the word hope, it is sure of the outcome. Hope means a confident expectation. There is no doubt, there is no wavering, there is no possibility that it will not come to pass because it is securely based on God and in God. That is why our hope is secure. That is why we can have a confident expectation. Is because not anything that we're responsible for. It's because of God and what He has done. If it were related to us, we may fail all the time. It would not be hope. It would be pretty much the opposite. Now, the Bible also gives us another little adjective to describe this hope, and it says it's a living hope. It means that our hope is not dead. Our hope is alive. And it kind of translates into what is being said next when we talk about the means by which this has come to us. And the means that we have been born again to the living hope or how this has happened, it is through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And I love how Peter and the Holy Spirit through Peter have placed these kind of two ideas together is that we are born again to a living hope and it's only by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. This living and resurrection kind of juxtaposition. So next we're going to move on and talk a little bit about resurrection. The word actually literally means a raising up or a rising up. And what I found was interesting and, and just a little thing that blows my mind about what God is capable of doing just in a small uh, kind of degree was when I came to study this word. I was studying this on Tuesday night, uh, kind of looking up the Greek word. I had already selected the songs that we were going to sing this morning before uh, I had done this. This was about two weeks ago that I selected the songs. But while I was studying this word, the actual transliterated Greek word, that's when they take a word in Greek and kind of match up the, the letter in Greek with like a letter in English and kind of get this word that we're not used to seeing or using. But anyone know what the Greek word or the transliterated word for resurrection is? 
It's anastasis, all right? Which is in the title of that last song that we sang. Oh, praise the name, and then in parentheses, anastasis. Just to repeat the third verse from what we just sang that kind of encapsulate this, encapsulates this idea of resurrection. Then on the third, at break of dawn, the Son of Heaven rose again. O trampled death, where is your sting? The angels roar for Christ the King. Our hope, our confident expectation is living because our Savior is living. He has been raised from the dead. If Jesus Christ had not been raised from the dead, then our faith What we're doing here Sunday morning is absolutely worthless. You might as well pack it up and go home. If this isn't true, if God, if Jesus Christ was not raised from the dead, all of what we are doing is in vain. 1 Corinthians 15 points this out clearly when the Apostle Paul says, but if there is no resurrection from the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. Hence, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead is absolutely essential to our Christian faith. It is essential to salvation. It's essential for our justification and the essential means by which we are born again into this living hope. If there is no resurrection from the dead, there is no living hope. There is no hope at all. The resurrection is essential to the gospel and again... It's essential to salvation. To kind of sum up what we've gone through this far, just to kind of keep our minds tracking and on track, the thoughts that we've covered, we've started with worship, all right? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, all right? Then we went to the impetus behind uh, our being born again and our, uh, into this living hope, and that's the mercy of God and the staying of God's wrath uh, directed at us. Next, we talked about being born again to a living hope, and that is by and through the means of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So if the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead is a means by which we have been born again to a living hope, what is the result then of that? If you look in verse 4, the result is clear. We've been born again to a living hope, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. What is an inheritance, you may ask? I found this little definition on some investing inheritance site online. One definition of inheritance says, inheritance refers to the assets that an individual bequeaths That's a fun word. Uh, To their loved ones after they pass away. An inheritance may contain cash or investments, such as stocks, bonds, and other assets, such as jewelry, automobiles, art, uh, antiques, and real estate. Now, obviously, that's a more modern definition of of an inheritance. But the idea, you kind of get there. You have an individual who has stuff, usually a father. And then when that father dies, or at a time of his choosing, He gives a portion or all of that wealth and accumulation that he's had uh, to his son. Who gets an inheritance? People who are born 
into the family. If I had assets, they're meager at best, but when I die or pass on, they would go to my children because they are in my family. Look back to verse 3 to see what is true of us. And do you see the connection? In order to get inheritance from God, we have to be born into the family of God. If we're not in his family, we cannot partake of his inheritance. And how do you have the right and the ability to partake in the inheritance from God? It is to be born again in God's family, which he has caused to be true of us through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Paul talks about this awesome reality in Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, verse 16, the Spirit, talking about the Holy Spirit himself, bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may be glorified with him. Did you catch that reality? Did you catch if we are children of God, if we are born into God's family through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, then we are heirs of God? And fellow heirs with Christ? And what do sons and daughters and heirs with Christ and of God receive? An inheritance. What does God have as his possessions for inheritance? Everything. What does God own? Everything. 1 Corinthians 3 21, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or present or future, all are yours and you are Christ's and Christ's is God's. Man, that's a pretty awesome reality if you think of it. In just these two verses, we have gone from being an enemy of God rightly deserving the wrath of God being focused and directed at us because of our sin, because of our not measuring up to God's glory, to having the mercy of God be the driving force and catalyst for us being born again to a living hope, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Being an heir of God and a fellow heir with Christ who owns everything. And how is this accomplished? Again, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And hopefully you can see this kind of linear thought process behind it. The cause, the effect, and the means by which that effect is obtained. The cause, obviously, is God's great and powerful and wonderful and awesome mercy. The effect is us being born again to a living hope that is imperishable, undefiled, undefading, unfading, this inheritance of everything owned by our Heavenly Father. And the means by which this is accomplished, again, is through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And folks, this should be ample fuel and ample fodder for our worship. When we understand these deep realities, it should make us result and return in praise and adoration, knowing there is nothing that we can do or add to the equation. It is only by grace, and it is only through faith. And if anyone's paying attention at the beginning of the message, I said how uh, sermons should start and end with worship in a, in a variety of ways, uh, as should our service and our life. Um, but the way that we're going to wrap this up uh, is by looking 
now to verse 6. Take a look at verse 6, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. In this, what is he talking about? In this, what we've just covered that is true for us. God's mercy, being born again, living hope, inheritance, undefiled, unfading. So in this, in that awesome reality, we rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, we have, be, have to be grieved by various trials. The word rejoice here means to feel or to show great joy or delight in. And we've already just discussed in what do we rejoice? This deep foundational doctrinal truth. And when are we to rejoice? Now and always. No matter what the circumstance, no matter what the trial, we should rejoice always because of that reality. Now understand and try to, try to think for a minute back to the believer that Peter was writing to. They were either about to or actively going through probably the worst and fiercest persecution of Christians that the world has ever faced. To even think about enduring such persecution, I don't have time or desire to really go into some of the ridiculously insane torture that Christians had to endure, but could you imagine having to try to endure that? And to think about enduring that and not immediately just turning away from the Christian faith and just dropping it all, all right? Could totally see myself doing that. But to rejoice in these trials, to rejoice when your loved ones are being torn apart in a stadium, to feel or show great joy or delight in that, how in the world does one do that? It's by standing firm in the truth of God and what he has said and what he has done. This is only done in a supernatural way. And you know what that demonstrated when these Christians were being persecuted and slaughtered? It demonstrated that God was their highest priority. He was the most important thing to them. You do what you want to this body, our hope is heaven. Our living hope is the risen Savior, Jesus Christ. What does that show to the world? It shows that God's the priority. And that, folks, is worship. And that's what our lives should be. Our lives should be lived in a way that the world can see that God is our highest priority and not ourselves. So to close here, I just have a couple of things to point out. Worshiping God should be something we're doing every day because of who God is and what he has done. Secondly, we should rejoice in trials whenever and however they come. And folks, they're coming. Um... Whether it's in our lifetime or not, things are obviously looking pretty shady. Um, but to understand this deep core biblical doctrine, I think, can provide us the ability to stand firm in whatever comes our way. Thirdly, I want us to think deeply and to study. All right? These passages of Scripture are not just for us to gloss over. They hold such tremendous life-changing and life-sustaining truth that is just ready 
and there for us. Let's dive into it. All right, let's not be scared to think and study. All right, and what an amazing reality that we live in a world there's so many resources available to us. I mean, could you imagine medieval times? You can't read, you can't write, you go to a church where you're just fed by whatever the pastor has to say. All right, or maybe you remember something that you sang uh, in one of the songs or psalms. All right, we have so many resources available. Let's take those to our advantage. And then finally, we need to worship God in everything because he is worthy of more praise and adoration than we could ever even begin to fathom. And as I mentioned, to, uh, mentioned before, there is coming a day where we're going to be surrounding the throne of God above, joining with people from every tribe and every tongue and every nation forever singing praise to God. If you would all please stand, let's just close with a benediction found in uh, Ephesians 3, and then we'll be dismissed. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we can ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Thank you guys for coming today. You are dismissed.